and welcome to the VIP podcast. That stands for Very Impressive People. It's all about the people behind the idea. Now, if you've listened to any of the episodes so far in this series and you particularly enjoyed some, will you do me a favour? Will you go and leave a review? I know you can't necessarily do that on Spotify if you're listening there, but definitely on Apple Podcasts or wherever there is somewhere that you can leave a review, I'd appreciate that. The second thing is, and I wouldn't normally do this, but I'm just going to test the water to see how far and whereabouts you're listening to this podcast. I'm going to give you my email address. And if you can do me a favor and drop me an email, I would love to shout you out in future podcasts. It's just nice to know you're there and you're listening and what you make of it and what take-home tips you've got. And also, if you have suggestions of other people where you know the brand, the product, the, the idea, the book, whatever it is, but we don't necessarily know the people behind it. So do drop me a line and get in touch and say hello. James.carpenter at outlook.com. That's james.carpenter at outlook.com. And just having a little look at the statistics of the VIP podcast, that's very impressive people. We have half of our listenership in the United Kingdom. We have 30% in the United States, 10% in Australia, 5% in Germany, and so on and so on. But the, the top city in terms of listening to our podcasts, I thought it would be somewhere in the UK. It's not. It's Los Angeles, followed by London, Melbourne, San Diego, Sutton in Ashfield, don't know where that is, uh, Bristol, Dartford, Edinburgh, Newquay, Sunderland, Tubbingen, is that, or Tubbingen, don't know where that is, never heard of it, sorry if you live there by the way, Uckfield and Westmores, I could go on but I won't. Uh, just to let you know, Richard Koch is coming up now, he was in Portugal, I was on holiday with my family and coming up you get two for the price of one because you'll hear about the main investor behind Betfair. And the 80-20 principle, the secret of achieving more with less. It's a fantastic book. And it's the idea that you get 80% of your results from 20% effort. And you can apply this to your whole life. Enjoy. I just want to start by saying, firstly, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. And the only reason you're doing this is because I heard you on Tim Ferriss' podcast and I listened to it in several chunks with my wife and your interview was so fascinating. I thought I've got to talk to you because it fits in with this series. Very impressive people, people behind the idea. And we'll get to the ideas and the things that you've done in a moment. But I just want to tell you before we go any further that our interview will be 33 minutes long and that's it on the dot. And there is a reason for that. Well, that's perfect. Very good. But I will tell you why at the end of the interview. <laughs> Can we start, Richard, with Betfair? People will know that the world's largest online betting exchange. Tell me why you invested just over a million quid to three guys when no one else would. I mean, one reason is that I like gambling. Uh, and another reason, a very good reason, is that uh, one of my best business associates and friends had invested in this company um, about six months before they approached me. And uh, I didn't know at the time anything about the company. I didn't know what a betting exchange was. You know, a betting exchange, for anyone who doesn't know, is where you don't use a bookmaker, but you actually have members of the public who make bets against each other. So one person says, this horse or this team is going to win, and the other person says, nah, it's not going to win. Uh, so they, they act as what most people think of as a bookmaker, so they lay it. They say, you know, Manchester United, terrible team, so we're going we're gonna to say that that's 
going to lay it. Not many people say that, of course, and the, the odds reflect that. It's an electronic market. And instead of the bookmakers taking um, 10% or 20% out of the pool effectively because their books don't add up. They, the bookmakers make a book, but the, it adds up to more than 100. And the difference uh, is what they call the overround, which you and I would call fat profit. And instead of the 10 or 20% fat profit, what a betting exchange does is it just facilitates the bet between two parties and then takes a very small commission, usually about 2% these days, um, on the winning bet. So effectively, the margin is 1%. Now, Jimmy, if you think about it, the, the theory behind that is that if you're more than 1% better than the people that you're betting against who are members of the general public, uh, you're going to win money. And it is possible to win money on a betting exchange. I have to say that I'm not one of those people who regularly wins over the long haul. I just do it for fun. But, but you know, it's... So that was the idea of the betting exchange. Now, when this idea was explained to me, I really liked the idea because it was the kind of business, exactly the kind of business I want to invest in, quite apart from the fact that it was to do with uh, betting. Um, because the businesses I try and invest in are what I call star businesses, which was an idea that the Boston Consulting Group had ages ago, and I went to work for the Boston Consulting Group, so I learned all about star businesses, and I based my whole investment philosophy, and in many ways my philosophy of life, on the idea of a star business. And a star business is a business that is in a market that's growing fast, and it's the leader in that market. Now, you notice I didn't say anything about market size, because market size is irrelevant to this. Of course, if it's in a high growth market, the size will get bigger. But the best place to start with any new business is in a small market or indeed a market which doesn't exist. Because if you do that, you can dominate that particular market. And there may be good reasons why, if you grow very fast, no one will be able to catch you up. And the people who make the most profit in any market are nearly always the people who are the largest in a niche. So a niche is defined, or a segment as the business jargon goes, is defined, you know, if you have different customers and you have a different product and you have different profit margins, you're probably in a different arena from the point of view of competition. And what most people don't realise is that, is that it's the nature of competition which determines whether or not you can make a lot of money. Because if everything is a commodity, and one person's product is the same as another person's, and the costs of producing it are the same, then uh, there's no one in the market, according to the economists, who can make money out of it. It's what they call a perfect market. Well, I call it a terrible market, not a perfect market. <laughs> I'm trying to look for monopolies. And this seemed to me to be an incipient monopoly because there was no other business at the time uh, which was in this area. And although the company was very small, uh, it was growing very, very fast. It was growing immediately after I made my investment at something like 30, 40, 50% a month, not a year. And it was truly staggering. Of course, it was tiny, tiny, tiny. Now, you might ask, why wouldn't other people invest in that? Because they were desperate for investment. They cobbled together friends and family in order to uh, start the business. They had gone to financial institutions, to private equity houses, 
and venture capital houses, the sort of people who invest in this. And uh, they all said, no, we're not going to invest in this. This violates our most cherished principle as investors. And can you imagine what the most cherished uh, principle is, Jimmy? Go on. <laughs> Very well evaded. <laughs> the principle is that the people who run the business know what they're doing and that they've worked for years and years and years. And so this didn't apply in this particular case because this was a bunch of amateurs, it, the, the people who started it. One of them, Andrew Black, known to his friends as Bert, was a professional gambler. And also, um, he was absolutely brilliant statistician and you know lots of other things. But he had never run anything. Uh, he'd never been in business at all. And the other guy, and uh, Edward Ray, was a debt trader for Morgan Stanley. So he knew something about finance, but he knew nothing at all about running a company. He'd never done anything. He'd never, <laughs> he'd never run anything, I should say. Uh, and they were two very, very talented guys. I mean, uh, Bert's absolute genius, there's no doubt about it. But, you know, if you're a venture capitalist, you want people with a proven track record. You don't want a bunch of people who were either betting enthusiasts or sports enthusiasts. And that was the only criterion that the people who started the company applied <laughs> when they hired people. So they had nobody in the company who even vaguely knew anything about managing or running a company. The nearest that it came to it was a guy who had been in the army. And so he knew a little bit about how to organize things but he didn't know anything about business as such. Was that the greatest investment you've ever made in all the businesses that you currently invest in or have done? Well, it's a, fu it's a funny question, maybe, is the answer, because it depends how you measure it. I, I think I made about £100 million out of my uh, investment in that, which, which started off at £1.5 million. Uh, and that is not the most money that I've made out of any company. Uh, but on the other hand, I'd never made anything like that up to that time. But then you could also say, well, where did I get a million and a half pounds from? Well, one of the sources of a million and a half pounds was that I had been one of three partners who started a consulting business, a strategy consulting business, a bit like the Boston Consulting Group, but on a much smaller scale. I worked in that company. It was very successful for five years. And then I decided I didn't want to carry on doing that. So I sold my shares to my partners and I collected after tax about four million pounds. So if I hadn't had the four million pounds, I couldn't have made the other investments. And I made, you know, what happened was when I started investing, I invested in a company called Filofax and made seven times my money. I was one of the people who started um, as an investor, that is, not as someone running it. Belgo, the restaurants, and that made far more money than that. I mean, it made, I don't know, 20 times the money or something like that. You invested in Plymouth Gin, didn't you? I invested in Plymouth Gin, yeah, when it, when it had a gin distillery, but no sales. <laughs> and uh, it was a great brand, so we thought we could do something with it, and it went absolutely nowhere until we were very, very lucky because uh, there was a blind testing on the, on the food and wine programme. And uh, it came out top out of, I don't know, 30 brands or whatever. And whereas previously, we'd never been able to sell anything to supermarkets or anybody else, really. Uh, they were, the telephone was ringing off the hook the following morning. So, so you know, we were, we were very lucky. But, but, you know, that was the first of the super gins. You know, nowadays, there are hundreds of these things, you know, really, really nice gins, which have some kind of uh, differentiation. 
but uh, Plymouth Gym was the, the very first of those. And um, so I was very lucky with that. So, you, so to answer your question, by, by the time that Betfair came along, I got the money to invest. So it's a little difficult to tell what's important. And, and your listeners must appreciate the, the first thing, if you're interested in making money or even just having a company that you like running and that fulfills you, the, the critical thing is, is the first break that you get uh, and so, you know, without those, without Belgo, without Filofax, without Plymouth Gin, I would probably never have been in a position to say one and a half million for Betfair. It's obvious, you know, despite the fact yeah. that nobody else thought that was a good investment. I suppose as Steve Jobs said, you can't join the dots up looking forward. It's only, it's only going back. Now, you and investing in Betfair and the Filofax and Plymouth Gin and all the other businesses is one thing. But the other thing that you're renowned for is the 80-20 principle. I have your book in front of me, The Secret of Achieving More with Less. I know you've talked about this lots. Um, can you just firstly, though, before we go any further with this, just explain how you got to write this big old book here from writing initially what was half a page? Yes, one of the curiosities that I wrote, you say, when I started off writing, Jimmy, I didn't really know what to write about. And so I um, went to see various publishers. And one of them said, what I will do is commission you, since you appear to know a lot about business, which I probably did, says modesty. Uh, I would write an A to Z of management terms and ideas and concepts. And so this book, which is no longer in print, um, was a great book to write because it was, it was good fun and I, it, I wrote it very quickly. And one of the entries in it was the 80-20 principle because I had learned about this when I was an undergraduate by reading a book by Vilfredo Pareto, who was an, an Italian economist at the end of the 19th century. He didn't actually invent the, 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 the term 80-20, but he came up with the idea. And so I'd written half a page about this, explaining what it was. And, you know, I can explain it very briefly, which is that most results come from a small minority of causes. So you can see this in, in daily life. You know, some people are very, very successful and most people aren't. You can see it in terms of the clothes that you wear. You know, most of the clothes that we wear are a small proportion of all the clothes hanging up in our, in our wardrobes. Uh, you can see it in terms of accidents that, you know, a small proportion of people cause most accidents. Uh, and so the basic idea is that, is that uh, if you can identify the things which are very powerful causes, you can actually achieve great results. And you can think about this in terms of time as well. If you think about anybody who's created anything of value, They've done it almost always in a relatively small proportion of their time. And so you might say in terms of working, why do we work five days a week? Because actually, if we come up with a really good idea in an hour, you know, let's say that we want to sell a product and we come up with a customer and manage to persuade the customer to buy it or we invent a new product, even more powerful, or we do something else which is really useful and makes the thing take off then, um, you know, we can take the rest of the week off and we've, we've achieved fantastic results. Of course, most people, organisations don't work like that, but if you're self-employed, you can have that, that philosophy. And so what it, what it says is that a few things are very, very important and most things are not. You can think of it in terms of friends. I mean, 
Most, if you made a list of the people that you see most, let's say the 20 people that you see most, I bet you that there would be three or four names on that which give you the greatest satisfaction and happiness and that you enjoy seeing. And a lot of those people probably don't uh, contribute very much to your happiness or to your achievement. Uh, one of the worst possible things in life is to spend time with people that you don't like. And it's amazing how many people have a boss, for example, they don't like. Well, you know, that's pretty stupid. You should fire the boss. That's my advice. <laughs> well, you talk about that in the book, don't you? And you, I mean, it is a phenomenal book. I bought it only recently because I heard you again talking about it. And there are so many useful takeaway tips. Too much for us to mention this podcast, so people have to go and buy it. It was you that actually took it from a business sense, though, going, actually, hang on a minute, you can, you can apply this to other areas of your life. So what... What, how can we get the best out of this listening to it, Richard? You talked about from the clothes to friends. What do you do? Do you get a pen and a bit of paper? Do you draw up a list of everything or the, the bits of, the, of your life that you're not sure about? How do you go about it, Richard? You can, sit on a, you can sit on a fish pond or you can sit on a park bench and take a piece of paper. I don't recommend using your phone. Let's take a piece of paper and just write down a subject. So the subject might be friends, or the subject might be achievement, or the subject might be the time. And then you put down the things which produce the greatest results. And then you put the, um, the other things which don't produce results in a different column. And then you simply say, well, which of the things that don't produce great results can I cut out? And which of the things that do produce great results can I spend more time on or put more energy into? or if you're in business, put more money in behind, and so on and so forth. So it works for any, anything that you want to think about. You don't have to be sitting down either. You can be cycling, or running, or walking, or just thinking, daydreaming. Uh, but you set yourself a topic, and you look at the answers when they come. Sometimes the, the answers come when you don't expect them. That's the way that the unconscious mind operates, which in the unconscious mind is a great example of the 80-20 principle, which is, takes almost no effort for the unconscious mind to produce results uh, because you're not consciously thinking about something. Well, I just, I, I'm glad you picked up on that because I was only reading that uh, before our interview. And you talk about the... Uh, conscious and subconscious so the difference between willpower conscious and subconscious your imagination to the point where salvador dali used to sit down and relax and hold something heavy when he'd fall asleep he'd drop and wake up and then start painting using what his imagination yeah i mean that's i mean you don't necessarily have to hold a heavy object but it is a good idea to wake up sometimes when you're on the on the you know on the borderline between sleep and consciousness. So what I do and what I know um, several other people do is they just keep a notebook by their bed and they take a note of that. Or, or alternatively, you might be traveling on the tube or you might be um, walking or whatever and you suddenly have a great idea. The trouble is that you very often lose these ideas because they're fleeting. But if you write them down and go back and review them, you will be able to um, see what you've come up with. Now, it's not the case that everything you jot down is going to be useful. Again, the 80-20 principle probably applies there. That there are a few of those ideas which couldn't be fantastically successful, and most of them are probably rubbish. But at least you've captured them. Uh, and and that's that's very important, I think. Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this. I don't know if you've read or heard anything from Elizabeth Gilbert. 
but she's, she's done a great TED talk and she says about, if you look at the definition of the word inspire, it is to breathe in. And she thinks that ideas are around us. We're the vehicle for them and we attract them to us by how we're thinking. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I came up with the idea of a business, uh, which is not necessarily anything to do with business at all, which is sort of ideas and ideas like, like take self-service, for example. I mean, self-service was probably the greatest business idea of the 20th century. And people started applying it in one area. For example, they applied it in supermarkets quite early, but it took a long time before they applied it to things like uh, service stations, garages. Uh, you, you know, you used to have to sit at a, at a pump and wait for the attendant to come and, and et cetera. Nowadays, of course, you, you, you don't do that. The whole of Ikea is probably organised around the idea that when you're buying furniture, you do all the work and you get rewarded for that by by um, by having something that probably costs half or a third of of um, of what it would if you go to a conventional furniture store. So self-service is sort of like a business idea. And the, the, the great thing about ideas is that they are usually great ideas anyway, are usually transferable across different countries, across different areas of business, across different areas of your life. And to come back to the 80-20 principle, that's what I did because previously the 80-20 principle was very well known in business. And anyone who'd been to a business school and a lot of people who studied economics knew about the 80-20 principle. But no one before I wrote the book had actually thought of applying it outside business. So then I said, well, you know, maybe it applies to happiness. Maybe it applies to friendship. Maybe it applies to time itself. And that's to come back to the question which I didn't answer, which is how could I go from half a page to a book? I remember that the person who commissioned, the editor who commissioned uh, the A to Z of, of management um, read this 80-20 entry and said, you could write a book about that. And I said, Mark, you're out of your mind. You know, there's no way that I could write a book. I've written a paragraph about it. You know, I could probably stretch that to a page. If you really forced me and held a gun to my head, I might even be able to write a very short chapter. But I'll never be able to write a book about it because there's nothing more to say. But then when I sat and thought about it, then I realised actually it could be applied in all these other areas. And that's what, that's what the book is about. Well, that brings us nicely on to your new book. Um, so less than 10 minutes. I did promise this will be 33 minutes on the dot, and I will tell you why in a moment. Um, so your new book, Unreasonable Success and How to Achieve It. What do we learn, Richard, from this book that's not in your previous books? Oh, it's completely different from, from other books. What I did, I've always been fascinated, Jimmy, by the nature of success. Why are some people successful? And in particular, what I call unreasonable success an unreasonable success means, I suppose it really means that people don't deserve it, or in a sense they don't deserve it. Why is it that some people really make it big and other people who uh, have got exactly the same background, usually possibly even greater talent, equal or greater talent than that, why is it that there are some people that are very, very successful and other people who never, you know, they might be moderately successful, they never really make the big time. So what I did was to take 20 people that I knew about, either living or dead, some of them I knew, most of them I didn't, but I knew something about them. And unquestionably, they had been very successful. So you mentioned Steve Jobs earlier, he, he, he's in the book, Madonna's in the book, Winston Churchill's in the book, 
Uh, Helena Rubinstein, who invented cosmetics, is in the book. Marie Curie, uh, who invented radium, or, or discovered radium, rather, she, she's in the book as well. Bob Dylan's in the book. So lots of, you know, lots of people that you've heard about who have been very, yeah. very successful. And I said, can we isolate the reasons why they were successful? Because it wasn't, I mean, Bob Dylan wasn't very successful because he had a great voice. The man couldn't sing. <laughs> so how come that Bob Dylan was hugely successful? Winston Churchill was uh, the biggest failure in the first 40 years of his career. Uh, he had failure after failure after failure. He was responsible for killing, uh, oh, you know, tens of thousands of people in the First World War through the Gallipoli campaign, which was a harebrained idea that he had. You know, he he fomented the general strike in 1926 by going off the gold standard in the in the previous year and increasing unemployment. Uh, he had a long campaign against Gandhi and a, a moderate measure of Indian independence. And the man, although incredibly elo eloquent, was a total disaster. He had no judgment at all. Then along comes this chap called Adolf Hitler. And, and Churchill's the only person in Britain who realised that Hitler was a, an existential threat, not only to Britain, but to the whole free world. Um, and a lot of people went and talked to Hitler in the 1930s. Um, the leader of the Labour Party, uh, David Lloyd George, who'd been prime, prime minister during the First World War and led the Liberal Party, uh, a, a whole slew of um, journalists and well-known authors went to see Hitler and they all came back with the same story, which was Hitler's not really all as bad as you think, you know, and you have to understand that, you know, Germany was very badly treated at the end of the, the uh, First World War. And what Hitler's doing is giving them their pride back. And in fact, the prime minister at the time, Neville Chamberlain, said something slightly different, which was he went to visit Hitler, as you know, at the, in Munich, in order to surrender, <laughs> in order to, to allow him to invade Czechoslovakia, etc. Uh, and his view of Hitler was the man was was okay, t but totally undistinguished and unimpressive, and was never going to do anything great because he was, uh, you know, intellectually very limited, and he wasn't the sort of man that you'd invite into your cabinet, and you certainly wouldn't invite him to dinner because his table manners were dreadful. You know, that was the kind of mentality in the establishment of that time. Churchill said, screw that, you know, this man it means what he says, and he's going to basically try and conquer the world. And if we don't stop him now, we'll have to stop him later at greater cost. And of course, nobody listened to him. But when it was evident that Hitler had actually really did mean what he said, and he started invading, you know, not only uh, Eastern Europe, but uh, France as well, and all the rest of it, then Hit, and then, then Churchill was the only possible choice for Prime Minister, and everyone sucked their teeth and said, you know, Churchill's going to be a terrible Prime Minister because everything he's done to date has been a, a great failure. But what they didn't reckon with was that, that Churchill really did understand Germany, he really did understand Hitler, he really did understand the threat, and therefore everything he did afterwards was not necessarily hugely successful, but he was absolutely determined, he managed to persuade Roosevelt to come into the war, and so on and so forth. And that single achievement made um, him, you know, the best prime minister that Britain's ever had, probably. You know, and so it's never too late as part of the message, but, but, but part of the message also is that there are nine attributes 
that all of these people had which explain why they were successful. One attribute, for example, was the ability to recover from setbacks. And every single one of these people was very good at doing it. Self-belief is another of the nine qualities or attitudes. Um, and another one which is very important is a transforming experience. Every single one of these 20 people had an experience where they went into an organization or an event or some kind of experience and they emerged from it as a completely different person, 10 times as effective as, as what they were before. And the, the, for example, Margaret Thatcher, who's in the book, was a terrible prime minister and was about to be thrown out, not only by the electorate, but probably by her colleagues before the election of 1983. She was a total disaster. And yet she had a transforming experience and that was what she called the worst moment of her life, which when General Gautieri invaded the Falkland Islands. But that experience made her a different sort of person. And, um, you know, whether or not you agree with the politics of Margaret Thatcher, it's, 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 it's just amazing how someone can be transformed by an experience. Well, if you haven't had a transforming experience and you want to be unreasonably successful, it's one of the things that I say in the book, you better make sure that you try and arrange it or you put yourself in luck's path so that you can have a transforming experience because you're never going to be unreasonably successful unless that happens to you. The people in the book didn't plan their uh, transforming experiences, but we can. So it's better to stand for something than nothing at all. Yes, although, you know, one of the interesting things is I started with a, a long list of possible um, things which were common between these people and actually risk-taking wasn't. Um, half of the people in the book took really serious risks uh, and about half didn't. But, you know, the, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, if, if, if I just read the list, self-belief, having very high expectations, what I call Olympian expectations, a transforming uh, ex experience, one breakthrough achievement, just one thing that you need to do in your life which makes a difference, making your own trail, being completely idiosyncratic, finding and driving your personal vehicle, because you can't do it all yourself, thriving on setbacks, acquiring unique intuition, and the Steve Jobs thing of distorting reality. And I talk about each of those and give examples and say, you know, this is, this is how you go about acquiring these attitudes or these experiences. Well, it sounds great. And that's definitely going to be on my Christmas wish list. So thank you for that. It's called Unreasonable Success and How to Achieve It. Now, Richard, before you go, I did say we keep this to 33 minutes and 20 seconds bang on. And the reason is, is that I discovered you through another brilliant podcast, Tim Ferriss. And it was listening to Tim um, what, and what he was doing about two or three years ago. I used to drive from the BBC in London at Radio 2 where I was a producer and I'd drive two hours home because I was getting up from Leicestershire every morning to go in. So I'd leave the house at 2, 2.30 in the morning to start, to start working. I'd get to the office about quarter to five. I'd be home at 3, 4 in the afternoon. And Tim was my sort of sanity and, and other podcasts, um, James Altucher, another one, for my, for my journey. But anyway, your interview popped up and it is fantastic if you want to go and listen to it. But it's two hours, 46 minutes. <laughs> right? I, I think it's incredible that people will listen to that. I mean, well, you have to break it down a bit. So I thought I was going to apply the 80-20 principle to our podcast, which I broke down to be 33 minutes. <laughs> and that's 20%, is it? Yeah, it's 20%. So I thought if we can get your interview and a bit more into 20% of the time of the Tim Ferriss interview, I've done a great job. 
Well, I hope that you get as many listeners as he, as he did. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you actually, what's the reaction since you've been on his podcast? Because Jimmy, thank from what you. I Great see interview. Thank you very on much what's on feels. social media, it's pretty phenomenal. It is phenomenal. I mean, it's that that man has got um, fans. You know, millions of fans. I mean, millions of people actually have listened to his uh, podcast, and, and I think it's incredible. And I do think it's extraordinary that he can do that with such long such a long discussion. But in part, part, I mean, he would probably say that that you, you can't get into depth without some, you know, something like that. I, when, whenever I've done a podcast before, I've always insisted on being 30 minutes. So you and I yeah. agree. Yeah, I no, think we've great. run out of time, though, haven't we now? Yeah, yeah we, we have. have we, we have run, run out, out of time. time. Richard, listen, I am so grateful for your what you've had to say. Your your there's just so much to take in. In fact, I, I'd have to pause and rewind things you'd say to to rethink about stuff you've just said because it hits you one after another, which is brilliant. But um, there's just so much great stuff in there. So again, thank you so much for your time, Jimmy. Thank you. Great interview. Thank you very much indeed for yours. <laughs>